As we continue our series called The Bright Golden Line, this morning we are going to read from Genesis 45, just a small section to get a taste of this story as we retell it. But from Genesis 45, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. So far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word, let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The story of Joseph begins with his father Jacob. Jacob had one true love in his life, a woman named Rachel. And if you read earlier in Genesis, he ends up marrying Rachel and having two sons with her, one named Joseph and one named Benjamin. But along the way, as it was in the ancient world, complicated says stories, Jacob also had three other wives who bore him ten other sons. So as the story begins, we have Joseph, the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, the love of his life, Rachel, his little brother Benjamin, and ten other brothers, ten, twelve brothers in total, and Joseph is the favorite. And there's no doubt that he's the favorite. Jacob favors him. He's also, by the way, favored by God because he's been given a special gift not only can Joseph dream in a way that kind of sees into the future, but he can also interpret dreams. For example, one of the main dreams that sets off the story is he dreams a sheath of grain is out in the field, and 11 other sheaths of grain come and bow before the one in the center. If you were one of his other 11 brothers, what do you think you would think that story is about, that dream is about? Something about how Joseph is the favorite and someday they will all bow down to him. So they are jealous and they are hate-filled. And in this story that is about dysfunctional family, if nothing else, the brothers plot. Ten of those brothers take Joseph out while they are tending their sheep, and they find a pit, and they throw him in it, and then they debate. What should we do? Some of his brothers want to kill him. Another one of his brothers says, hey, just leave him in the pit. We'll walk away. I'm sure he'll starve to death on his own. And another brother, it's very important you remember this name, Judah, says, you see those Egyptian traders who are passing through our land? Let's see if they're interested in buying him and make him their slave. Right? Out of our hair, make a little money. What a great plan. And so the beginning story of Joseph 
starts with him being sold into slavery into Egypt. I imagine that one of the reasons most people love the story of Joseph, if they know the story, and the person who suggested it, is because of family. We all have family. The context of our lives is always family, good, bad, or ugly, whether they are there or they were absent, whatever it is, we all came from family, and it all can push our buttons in ways no one else on earth can. Many times it's family that knows us best, and many times it is family that we are the most likely to fight with because we're the closest with them. They'll know us the longest. But behind that context that absolutely the story of Joseph is about family, there's also that question of theodicy, or what we say is bad things happening to good people. We get both. It makes total sense that God would put the two together because if you're going to ask that question that every person on earth has ever asked, you would use the context that every human being who has ever lived has had, which is family. But why do bad things happen to good people? Why do brothers sell their brother into slavery? You know, as Christians, we need to be careful when we ask this question because the way we ask the question matters. And remember, with us... There's no such thing as good people or bad people. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that bad people could become good people. He died on the cross so that dead people could come alive. Bad things don't just happen to good people or bad people. The question is, why do bad things happen? You see, we were created, this is what Christians believe, we were created in the image of God. That comes from Genesis, right along with the story of Joseph. Joseph, we were created in the image of God. But in our sinful nature, the way this disease has affected everything, us as individuals, as people, as society, as all of creation, that longs for the day when our sinful nature, this disease is gone, we all wait. Not good and not bad, something else. Some kind of glorious mess that God loves that God won't give up on. So why does God let bad things happen in this glorious mess? Well, back to the story, because we'll answer that question as we go, or at least try. Joseph is sold into slavery, and there's a lot of stories about those early years in Egypt. We don't have time here this morning for them all. But just know this. At this point, if you were going to call anybody a good person, it would be Joseph. He was honorable and honest. He did not take the opportunities to be a bad person that were presented to him. And yet, because of other people's lies, because of other people's broken promises, he ends up spending the majority of his life in prison. You see, he's sold into slavery, and at first he goes to work as a servant, but eventually his owners turn on him and throw him into prison, and those around him promise that they'll help him get out, and they never do. And so this one insult of being sold into slavery becomes a lifetime of being put upon, being the victim of other people's lies and broken promises. The Heidelberg Catechism, I read earlier as our opening prayer, 
that question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I asked it because I think for us as Christians, especially in the Reformed tradition, when we start talking about why bad things happen to us, the glorious messes of God, the beloved glorious messes of God, we need to make sure we ask that question too. You see, the, the way we ask a question will determine what kind of answers we get. It will shape the entire discourse of how we talk. For example, if we ask the question, instead of just asking why do bad things happen, but we ask why do bad things happen to good people, that assumes that we need to talk about good people. We're not talking about good people. We're not good or bad. We're glorious messes. If you ask the question differently and said, how do I fix this bad thing in my life, you know, the next thing you're going to get is an answer that is a to-do list on how to save yourself. If you ask yourself the question, how do I res get rescued from this bad thing that's happened? Then you'll probably end up talking about how you escape to eternal life, to heaven, or something like that. But as Christians, what we understand is that while the story of God is certainly about eternal life and fixing things and about salvation. We also know that the way of Christ, what we're called to, is to go through things. So it's a good question when we ask it. Why do bad things happen? What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's the kind of questions when you're setting up a scene where you say to yourself, the discourse we're going to have is we're glorious messes, but we still need something to hold on to as we go through stuff. We're not trying to fix it. We're not trying to be rescued from it. We know God will do that for us, but we know that on the way we're going to have to go through something. We need something to hold on to. If we're going to be like Christ, who, yes, he brings salvation, yes, he fixes and redeems all of creation, but also went through his own suffering to get there, what do we hold on to? The Heidelberg asks the question, what is your only comfort then in life and in death? And the answer is two words, sovereignty and providence. God is in control, that's sovereignty. I am not my own, but I belong completely, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And providence, the idea that God has a good plan for us. As the answer continues on, that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven, working together for my salvation. Sold into slavery, lies and broken promises, a life that seems just completely wasted. Why does Joseph have to go through that? What is he supposed to hold on to while he does it, even if he acknowledges he's a glorious mess? If Joseph had to dwell in any promise to get him through those years in prison, I imagine it is still the hope that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that God still has a good plan for his life. And God does. After many years in prison, Pharaoh, the, the king, you know, the emperor of Egypt, has a dream. And guess who can interpret dreams? And when the word gets to him that Joseph can do that, he's brought out of prison. And yes, Joseph, unlike anyone else, successfully interprets the dream. Basically, the dream is 
there's going to be a famine. Pharaoh, you need to prepare for many years of famine, so start prepping for it now, saving up grain every year. And Pharaoh goes, great, I finally get what my dream's about. Joseph, why don't you take over? And so up out of prison, he becomes this hugely important person in the Egyptian empire to collect and prepare for the famine. The famine comes, and you can imagine the famine just doesn't happen just in Egypt. It happens in the lands around them as well, which means we get the reintroduction into the story of Judah and his brothers. Yeah, the famine has extended to Jacob and his family, and so Jacob sends Judah and his other brothers, minus Benjamin, the little brother, into Egypt to go and buy supplies from the Egyptians. So Joseph encounters his brothers for the first time in decades, and they don't recognize him because he's changed a lot, but he absolutely recognizes them. Three times in the story after this, the Bible will record that Joseph broke down in tears, and it's about to happen here when he meets his brothers. He meets his brothers, and what the Bible says happens next is he accuses them of being spies. Why spies? We don't know, right? Maybe it's Joseph trying to figure out what's going on with these guys now. Maybe he's trying to get back at them. Maybe he's just acting irrationally because, yeah, has that ever happened to you? You get in the midst of those who have hurt you, especially your family members, and you become a little irrational, a little erratic. He accuses them of being spies. They defend themselves and say, no, 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 we didn't do it. And so he cuts them a deal. He goes, all right, if you're not really spies, here's the deal. I'm going to send nine of you back. Remember, he's one of them. Benjamin's at home. That means there's 10 other brothers there. He says, I'm keeping one of you. The other nine can go home. I want you to come back and bring your little brother. I'll give you all the supplies you want. You can buy them from me right now. But one of your brothers has to stay here in prison, and you bring me your little brother. They cut the deal. They go on their way. Joseph, if you thought was a good man, honorable man, hear it again. He's just a glorious mess like the rest of us. He spent his whole life trying to be good, but encounter the deep sense of hurt that has happened with Judah and the other brothers, and he is erratic. He's accusing them of being spies. He's throwing one of them in prison. And for what? So, so he can lay his eyes on Benjamin again? Is that rational? Why didn't he just admit who he was? The brothers go home. And a couple of very important things happen when they get back home. First of all, they open up their bags that they paid for, right? All these supplies they paid for, and each one of them has a bag. And in each one of the bags is the money they spent to buy it. And this does not strike the brothers as welcome news because they are not in Joseph's good graces. They don't know who he is, but they know he doesn't like them. And so if they somehow left with all this stuff and the money they bought it with, they're going to be accused of something else. And so they actually say to God, why have you done this to us? They're afraid to go back. 
They also tell their father that Simeon, that's the brother who got left in prison back in Egypt, is in prison. And Jacob's response is, well, he's going to stay there. Dysfunctional families, right? Your son is in prison in Egypt for something he didn't do, and you're like, let him stay? Jacob's reasoning is that he will not let Benjamin go to Egypt. He's already lost Joseph, his beloved son. He's not going to lose his other beloved son. Let Simeon rot. The dysfunction. But the supplies run out, and something has to be done. And so even though they're afraid, because they have the money that they're not supposed to have, and even though Jacob is still really against it, Judah goes to Jacob and says, I'll take Benjamin with me, and I promise he is coming home. He will come back with me. I swear on my own son's life, Judah has two sons, he will come back with me. And so Jacob finally agrees, and the nine brothers go back to Egypt. When they get back to Egypt, Joseph sees them from far off, and so he has them called to his house. There's this big banquet scene, but you get a very important symbolic moment in this banquet scene. You see Hebrews and Egyptians were not allowed to eat together. The Egyptians thought it was disgusting to eat with a Hebrew. And so even though they have this great big banquet, the picture is that Joseph goes and sits in one room in his house to eat, and his brothers go sit in a different room. And the divide could not be more clear here. When Joseph gets to also meet Benjamin for the first time, he sort of cracks a little bit, and he gives him a Jewish blessing. May the Lord be with you. Egyptians wouldn't know that line. Still, it doesn't make sense what's going on, this big banquet, this blessing on Benjamin. And so then, yet again, he fills all his brother's sacks full of grain, and he sends them on their way. By the way, when they come confessing, oh no, we, don't, we didn't take this money, we swear, Joseph goes, well, the gods must have blessed you because I have the money you gave me. I don't know where that came from. And so Joseph sends them on their way until they're outside the city. And then one of Joseph's servants shows up, stops them and says, hold on, guys, you're being called back. <clears throat> We've been told to uh, search all of your bags this time because Joseph's cup is a very important cup, right? The cup he drank out of, it's been stolen and we think you did it. The brothers go, no, 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 no. We didn't do it. We promise. Go ahead, search our bags. And so they get their bags searched and it turns out now all ten brothers who were going home safe and sound, once again, there are sacks of money that should not be there in every one of their supply bags. But more importantly, there is one bag with Joseph's cup in it, and it's Benjamin's. Joseph is a glorious mess. Bad things have happened to him in his life. Why is God doing all this? And why, at this moment, is God doing this to his brothers, to Jacob, to Benjamin, to Judah? 
in these days when I'm sure we've all had to ask that question, and I'm sure I know that there have been people that have posed it to me, why is God doing this? Not just family stuff, but pandemic stuff. What is God up to? What is God doing to us glorious messes? At this moment, and I know there's many answers, but at this moment, my own personal answer is this. God is working on sanctifying us. That process of not just being seen as saved by God, but actually becoming who God wants us to become. I don't always understand it. I don't get it. I'm not going to pretend I do. I am willing to rely on what God has been saying through scriptures, been revealing about God's self the whole time, which is, you need to walk through it, know that I'm in control, know that I have a good plan for your life. That's the question as we come nearing the end of Joseph's story, is, is that enough for Joseph? Because he's got him. He's got Benjamin. He tells the brothers, I'm keeping Benjamin as a slave. He broke the law. He stays here. You can go. But he's mine now. Is it enough? It's Judah who steps up to him. He gives, he gives Joseph this whole speech about how, you know, his father Jacob is going to die if Benjamin doesn't go home, that they've already lost one brother and that it would kill him if they lost Benjamin as well, and how he's, he said that if Benjamin doesn't go home with him, he said his own sons would die. Please, please have mercy on us. Is it enough? It shouldn't be enough. It should not be enough. Because while Judah still does not know who Joseph is, Joseph knows the real story. He knows the half-truth that Judah just told. He didn't, they didn't just lose another brother. The other brother didn't just die. They sold him into slavery, and he's standing right in front of them. Judah may be telling a story, but he is not confessing his sins. Why should there be forgiveness for a family member who can't get honest and can't get real? Why should there be anything with Benjamin's slavery? Why should he not take it out on him? It shouldn't be enough. But you know, that's exactly where it was that I picked up the story this morning from Genesis 45. The third time around that Joseph breaks down in tears and his irrational, can't-control-himself part of his life, he sends all of his servants out of the room, but he's so loud they hear him anyway. He weeps so loudly the Egyptians heard him, all of Pharaoh's household heard him, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? The brothers can't believe it. They can't even respond. And so Joseph then jumps out into his own long speech that he gives the brothers. And basically what he says is, 
This is what it was all about. Everything I've gone to was so that I could save you, that I could save Jacob, that I could bring you all here and keep you safe. That's what all this was for. That's why God was doing it. So go, go get dad and bring him here. It shouldn't be enough, though, though, is it? After all these years, and Judah still not owning up to what he did, standing there, giving him all these excuses, still not being honest. How does it happen? You know, there's this little bit of Hebrew that I love, though, in Judah's speech, right? When he first steps up to Joseph and starts begging for Benjamin's life, he says, hear me, O Lord which in Hebrew is tricky because you could literally hear it a different way. There's a couple different words there, and you could hear it as him addressing Joseph, saying, you know, hear me, Lord, saying that to him. Or it could sound like him saying, hear the Lord speaking through me. Those could be the two meanings of that phrase. It shouldn't be enough. It shouldn't be enough unless maybe Joseph finally made the connection between the sovereign God who had a good plan for his life speaking through him, this time not through a dream, but through his brother. His imperfect, broken, glorious mess of a brother who still can't get real about what's going on in his life, and he hears it, and hears God say, listen to their story. This is what it means. I, I honestly think the only way that this story makes any sense, because honestly, Judah's speech is just not that good. It's not that honest. If anything, it should make Joseph even more mad. A guy who's already been erratic should only get more erratic in this moment, but he doesn't. He breaks down and he rescues the family. There's always a good plan. I don't know what it is. But we need those moments, those messages of the bright golden line to help us figure out how to get through it. And look at your own families to get this. Because nobody will push your buttons like your family. Nobody will challenge the idea of good things and bad things more than the people you know the best. Look at them. I don't know why bad things happen to those of us who are this glorious mess. I do know this, though. What the Heidelberg is trying to say through sovereignty and that, that providential hand of God, there is a good plan for us all, is this. This is the outcome of it. God wins. God wins every time. He is in control, and it's his plan, and he wins. Sometimes the bad things that happen to, our, to us in this life are because we forget that. In God's plan, I win, and you win, and all creation wins. Sometimes what we already have in our lives is the stuff that may make us feel like we're winning, but I guarantee you someone else is losing 
the good things in your life mean that someone else has to have less. The vulnerable have less good things. They're more at risk. They're in danger. And until the day when God makes it possible that you win and I win and all of creation wins, bad things are going to keep happening. But I guarantee you, the God who is in control, the God who has a good plan for all of us to win, wins. Our bright golden line through Joseph's life is, yes, the, com- the commiserating with a Bible story and a family that is nothing but a glorious mess to compare to us being a glorious mess. But it's also the story that begins to give us wisdom on how to know how to get through bad things. The ministry that we are all promised is one of reconciliation. Whatever else you think of what the coming kingdom of God will look like, we are promised in Scripture, it is reconciliation. It is us and God and each other together. And the way Genesis ends with Joseph's story is that is where they are. Not by any means perfect. Trust me, Jacob is still making a mess of his family by playing favorites through the end of the story. But they are there. They are together. They are safe. They are loved. The glorious messes that they are and the glorious messes they will be through history up into us, the glorious messes. Beloved, promised, God wins. Assured of that love and also called restlessly to change. Let us pray. Dear God, help us to forget the God we do not believe in and meet the God who believes in us. Gratitude, praise, hearts lifted high, voices full and joyful, these you deserve. For when you were nothing, you made us something. When we had no name and no faith and no future, you called us your children. When we lost our way or turned away, you did not abandon us. When we came back to you, your arms opened wide in welcome. You give us your very self so that we may be filled, forgiven, healed, blessed, and made new again. You are worth all our pain and all our praise. And so now, in gratitude, we join our voices with those of the church on earth and in heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. For us you were born. For us you heal, preach, teach, show us the way to heaven. For us you were crucified. And for us after death you rose again. Our hands are empty and our hearts are sometimes full of the wrong things. We are not fit to gather up the crumbs from under your table. But with your mercy is the power to change us, make us restless for change. Healing, forgiving, making us whole, 
that we may become for you your body, loving and caring in the world until your kingdom comes as we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen. And so remember, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciles us to himself through Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. For in him we live and move and have our being. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of your Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen, and go in peace.